Amen. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 1. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn or tap your way to Luke chapter 1 as we continue the sort of Christmas moment, this, this uh, Christmas season, and, and take the scripture and apply it. I don't know uh, what your situation was growing up. With our family, uh, my mother's youngest of eight, so it was a big, big family. And when I was growing up, that grandmother on that side was just a little bit older. You know, my mom's the youngest of eight. And every time we would drive to Christmas at that side of the family's house, we would get this talking to uh, on the way there about how you need to be nice to grandmother. Now, I don't know what we had ever done in the past to make my mother scared that we were not going to be nice to my sweet wheelchair-bound grandmother, but she would give us this talk, and I think it was because, yeah, you know, kids don't have a lot of guile. We don't have a good poker face. Uh, I, I, I was in kids' choir when I was growing up, never got it, didn't understand why we did it, and I'm sure I looked like I hated every minute of it. As an adult watching it, totally get it. That was worth every minute. That was so fun. And it's fun to watch them up there and they're kind of enjoying it or not and they remember it or don't and, you know, kind of looking around. You get that they don't have a good poker face. And I think my mother's concern was that, you know, grandmother is kind enough to get us something for Christmas. And if we open that gift, we need to be able to open that gift and look up and say, thank you, grandmother, and get up and go and hug her and say thank you. And not open it and be like, why would you get me this? What, what is this? Who would want this? And just push it off. Things that probably do occur to children when they get gifts that they're not thrilled with. The reason I bring that up is as you're looking at Christmas, I do wonder if you understand it well, if there's not a point where you think, is this what we really wanted? Is Jesus, or is the kingdom that Jesus has come to bring, something that's really attractive? And it's worth asking because I think culturally we can sort of fall into Christmas. Certainly, culturally, you can fall into Christianity. But does your heart burn for it? When we sing these songs, you can be moved by the beauty of the performance None of these people are performers. They're worshipers. They're leading you. But they are performing musically. And you can be taken by the, you know, the belting of that word Emmanuel. But are you taken by the concept of God with us? Are you taken by the concept of this God with us? I'm not sure that we are, and I want to try and get into Scripture well enough to see what does Luke tell us as he's walking through Jesus' birth that should excite us, should challenge us, certainly, but should also entice us so that we do get around each other and say Merry Christmas, not just out of habit, not just out of culture, but because we really are merry. We have been made merry by Christmas, and we are wishing that other people would feel that same Merriness? I don't know. Feel that same joy. So let's dig in together. Let's see it. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at Christmas from different angles. We haven't just been following one account. We looked at John 1. We talked about how God, really, really God, God who is God, Yahweh God, Old Testament God, becomes 
man, really actually in weakness, a man. Insane. The next week, we talked about how this birth communicates God's incredible love towards you because of the danger involved. Now, obviously, there was danger at the birth of Christ, and we focused on that, but it was a lens through which to see the danger of the mission of Christ. His birth shows you in miniature what his life had come to accomplish. You don't do that unless you love. He loves us. That's part of the meaning of Christmas. Today, though, I want to think about how that kingdom that he came to bring really does impact us. I want us to see it as it is and then see it in its goodness. Unto us a king is born. Let's look at Luke chapter 1, starting verse 26, where it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And, she, and he came to her, uh, Gabriel came to Mary and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. <laughs> I, I love that. I don't know um, exactly how that gets communicated to Luke. If that's Mary later on, if it's Gabriel who in that moment is making this proclamation and sees that instead of Mary getting happy because of what he said, she instead is, <laughs> she's opening up the gift and not sure that she wants it. Uh, she's discerning. She's troubled. But then he says, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, he will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom there will be no end. If you read through the scripture as it talks about Christmas, it's concerned with these concepts of kingdom, kingdom old and kingdom new, kingdom expected and kingdom unexpected. And I want to do you, hopefully, the service of plugging some of that information into your experience of Christmas. We're talking about a kingdom when we talk about Christ coming, when we talk about his birth and we say that a king has come. We're talking about a kingdom. But I don't know how well you understand what that kingdom is, what we now as Christians are supposed to be reflecting in our community. This kingdom is understood by the readers as something that is, is already prefigured, something that is uh, sort of uh, displayed for us in the history of Israel through the son of David, through David, the Davidic kingdom, and David's line. There are lots of people who, when you're having this uh, birth of Jesus story being told, are all Jewish. They're all people who would have heard the Old Testament taught to them and exposed to them. They would have heard the regular stories. Now, if you grew up in Sunday school, maybe you've heard some of those same stories. But just imagine that if your whole culture, if everything that you were exposed to, all of your Saturday morning cartoons, all of your Sunday morning songs, all of your weekly through-the-day school 
lessons were all based in a culture that, that talked about constantly this history, this story of your people Israel. And in that story, the highlight, when everything was great, was when David was king. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel get to a point where God puts them in the promised land and then delivers to them a king. That king's not so great. And that there was all this disobedience, yada, yada. Then God brings in this guy, David, a man after his own heart. And under David, the people of Israel become great. They become a force to be reckoned with right there in the center of the world in that part of Israel. Then David's line becomes even more powerful when you get this guy Solomon, the next in line, who builds this beautiful, magnificent power. The beginnings of everything that had been promised. They're a nation, they're whole, they're a whole people, and they've got a good king who follows their good God, and their good God is with them as represented by the temple. And they, as they worship God, are being given not only material blessing, even though they get that in spades, they're being given the blessing of knowing him and becoming a holy people. Now they screw it up. Screw it up real bad. And if you continue to follow the line of David and the line of the different kings, you have this divided kingdom and it gets to the, the point of disobedience where God actually takes their kingdom away from them. They're still Jewish people and they still identify as a group, but God has no longer allowed them to be a nation, not a nation under his name any longer. So when you get to the time of the New Testament, you get to the people who are, are broken and subjugated by the Romans. And so every time they heard these stories and every time they got excited about these prophecies that said things like uh, what we kind of talk about around Christmas, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, where it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Promises like this are all throughout this part of the Old Testament in that sort of um, kind of breakdown of the kingdom time and captivity time and slow sort of building back up of the kingdom. They knew that there was coming one after David's uh, line. There, the, the covenant that God made with David would not go away, and there would be one that would build something like what they had experienced with David. And then they get Jesus. And time and again throughout the New Testament, nobody seems to expect, and very few people seem to want, what Jesus has come to bring with a new kingdom. He, actually, he absolutely captures everything that was going on in the Old Testament. He embodies it perfectly, but he also shows them that what the Old Testament was talking about was not exactly what they thought it was talking about. It is also a new kingdom, a kingdom that will never end. Usually when you say that, and some of the promises people read, either from Psalm 2 or Psalm 46 or Psalm 110 or, or here in Isaiah 9, they would see things and think, well, that just means that you're going to have a good king, and that good king is going to be fertile and have mighty sons who will continue the monarchy. But no. God is saying that through this son, through this king, that that king would last forever. And of his kingdom, it would be everlasting. Such that he uses names like this. Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, Mighty God. 
I have to think that as they read the Old Testament, they were confused. And yet, in this Christ, all of that stuff comes together. David's kingdom, where God is with his people, where his people have safety, where his people are expanding the borders. That idea, that picture in David in the Old Testament is seen in the New Testament, is seen in Jesus, but it's seen in the same way as so many things that God's given us. I don't know if you know too much about what we do at Hope Church, but we have two times when we go from like singing and talking into this sort of symbolism, and it can seem odd. One is the first Sunday of every month when we take the Lord's Supper. You stand here, you come, you it's fairly regular as an event. You know, a guy speaks and people sing and then you pray. Maybe that's odd for you and then you leave. But on the first Sunday of every month, we take the Lord's Supper. And at the Lord's Supper, we, we sort of embody. Symbolize has sort of too small a meaning to it. We kind of embody the cleansing that we get through Christ. We take his body and we take his blood. We're remembering. We do this in remembrance. We're remembering what he's done for us. Well, a little bit of juice and a little bit of cracker are a small thing to represent the mighty concept of being forgiven by God. In the same way, we'll do baptism. We'll do it at the end of January. We're going to have more baptisms. All these kids that were up here, just kind of at the end of that group and the beginning of the middle school group, we got several people that are going to be baptized right in that age group. Very exciting. If you're somebody who's been thinking about baptism, let's talk. We got that baptism Sunday coming. But when we do baptism, again, you got a normal sort of thing happening, and then all of a sudden, somebody gets into a pool of water before you and gets dunked ceremonially. Odd. But not if you understand the meaning. Yes, it is a little bit weird to take somebody and wet them right there in front of you. But if you understand that it's describing, that it's symbolizing, that it's embodying the new birth, that you are dead with Christ, you're buried with Christ, and you're raised to newness of life, you're raised to walk with Him. Oh, it's beautiful. It's something that's small compared to what it reveals, what it symbolizes, but it's beautiful. In the same way, the kingdom under David is something that is small, but it's something that showed, it's something that embodied in some way what would come through this new king, through this new kingdom. I got to underline this for you. I need you to see this because, small a, but the number one, I think, is I want you to know why you should be reading your Old Testament. <laughs> We've been doing an Old Testament Bible reading plan. I feel like I'm constantly having to say like, hey, keep at it. You know, it's pretty good. And you get to the end of the year and you can see where everybody else is and you know, not many of you who started have finished. I understand. But I want you to understand that as you're reading the Old Testament, you're seeing in the pictures of the Old Testament what God has promised, what he's prefiguring, what he's going to bring about through the new kingdom in the New Testament. Yes, there is this old kingdom that they understood. The people that were there in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' birth understood that God would be bringing some sort of rule, some sort of security, some sort of wealth and prosperity back to them. What they didn't understand was this further reality, something that's seen with faith's eyes, this new kingdom that comes with Jesus. Now, we should be excited about that. But I'm going to make the case for you why I think that we're not excited about that. 
from the teaching of Jesus why he encountered so much resistance to the blessing that he came to bring with this new kingdom. I think the problem for us with this new kingdom is that it already has a king. Take a second to process that. Sounds a little like, uh, I don't know, either spooky, morbid, or just sort of confusing. But here's what I mean by that. When we get this new kingdom through Christ, we're not just being promised that there's going to be this reuniting of God with his people. We're also being told that this new kingdom already has a king. Here's how I want to illustrate for you what I think our problem is with that, that concept. Most of our good stories, most of our media that we imbibe, it's, it's a way for us to sort of live out a fantasy that I think a lot of us have in some way or another. You know, all the Marvel movies are, are gigantic, and if you've lived and kind of been aware of movies and what's going on for the last 20 or 30 years, can you tell me how many Batmans you could name? They keep rebooting it. How many Spider-Mans you could name? There's a new Spider-Man movie coming out. I'm finally tapped out. I'm not going to see it. Uh, we've watched lots and lots of Marvel movies. We've done our time. I think we're good. Uh, we're not going to see it. But there's been all of this kind of media now as they're promoting the new Spider-Man movie where they're getting all the Spider-Mans together. It's like the Bonds. You get all the Bonds together, and they fill up the whole stage. You get all the Spider-Mans together. They fill up the whole stage. Why do we keep rebooting? I think it's because we love that moment when Peter Parker realizes that he's Spider-Man. I think that's a good movie. Same thing with Batman. I think we love that moment when the little kid, who's very wealthy, of course, but is, is beat down and he sees his parents murdered, then becomes the vigilante detective, Batman. We love that moment when Hagrid bursts into the cabin and tells little orphan Harry, you're a wizard. We love that moment when Gandalf bursts into Bilbo's life and turns him into this super thief guy that's going to bring treasure back. Now, if you're not a nerd, we love that moment <laughs> when the commissioner says, with the third overall pick, the 1994, 1984 NBA draft, the Chicago Bulls organization selects Michael Jordan. And now looking back on it, we know the greatness that was coming. But you feel through these people. You know, you watch sports, and it's not just you enjoy the competition or the strategy. You, you live through these people to some degree. You watch as somebody finally does it, as somebody finally gets the crown, as somebody finally gets the glory, as somebody finally gets the honor, as somebody kind of becomes a little king. It's fun. It's interesting. As you kind of imagine it, the mundane sort of falls away. The sort of suffocating, hopeless materialism that we kind of walk around with in our culture gets a whole punch through it. And, and now you could maybe be the hero of the story as you imagine yourself, you know, as Spider-Man or Michael Jordan. The problem with Christianity is that you walk into this story and you're ready for this big call to action. And there's a call to action, but you are not the hero of the story. You're called into this understanding of a new kingdom, but it's a kingdom that's already got a king. It's a kingdom that you come into, if you remember our series on Philippians, without pride, but instead with humility. And that's a problem. 
I think that's a problem for most of us. It's certainly a problem as you continue in the life of Christianity. You keep waiting for the moment when you become glorified, when you become the hero. And eh, we've already got a king. You get to the teaching of Jesus, and I said this comes from the teaching of Jesus, but you have this constant sort of back and forth between Jesus and the Pharisees, but you also have this constant back and forth between Jesus and people like what's called the rich young ruler. These are people who have it together, and they come to Jesus, and they're expecting a sort of anointing. They're expecting a sort of attaboy that means that they continue as the star of their own show. The rich young ruler comes up to Jesus, and he asks how he can have eternal life. And Jesus tells him, hey, you got to keep the Ten Commandments. And the guy, with all kinds of either moxie or ignorance, says to Jesus, done. Did that. What else you got? And it says, Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. And so he said to him, sell everything you got and come and follow me. He gave him the meat. He gave him the full understanding of the kingdom by saying, it's not anything else. It's me. It doesn't matter what else you have if you have me. And in that moment, despite that man's arrogance, despite that man's sin, Jesus is offering this guy bliss. He's offering him heaven. He's offering for him to be united with God himself forever. And the guy walks away sad, for he had many possessions. You continue in the teaching of Jesus, you continue in the teaching about Jesus, and you see other characters, characters who don't have anything, characters who are part of a miserable kingdom. And for them, when Jesus shows up, because they've already been humiliated by life, they're, really, they're ready, they're willing to accept another as king. And for them, for them, they receive bliss. They receive glory. Dave was calling my attention to some of these people in this story in Luke. Simeon and Anna. These are the people who are not winners. These are the people who are just standing around waiting for this king to come. They don't have a lot going on for them in this world. They weren't like the rich young ruler who was moving and shaking. They were not like the Pharisees who were leading and judging. They were people on the outskirts. This guy Simeon had waited and waited and waited on the consolation of Israel, knowing, having received from God this promise that he would see, that he would see the fulfillment of these promises before he died. And it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 25, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Waiting, wanting, desiring, and God was with him. He sees how broken things are. He's got an incredible hope for what things can be, and he lives in the tension, in, in the pain of wanting but not having, of hope but not hope that has yet been fulfilled, and God is with that man. There's this other lady, Anna. There was a prophetess, go down to verse 36 of Luke chapter 2, named Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was an old lady. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband for seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow, until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, 
worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him of all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. If you're painting a picture of your life, you want to be the rich young ruler. You don't want to be Anna. You don't want to be this lady who got married and she was living life the way she kind of wanted to, and then seven years in, her husband dies. Instead of getting picked up or, you know, moved into some new situation and things getting maybe back on track. No. And she ends up, out of her longing, out of her suffering, out of her humility, longing for the Lord, posting up at the temple and just waiting through prayer and through fasting, pleading with God to bring the salvation of Israel. And what does she get? Well, she gets what the rich young ruler was offered and refused. She gets Jesus. She gets the king. If you're willing to accept the kingdom with its king, then you get blessed. And Jesus said it best in Mark 1.14. You want to know what Jesus said about himself, about his ministry? Mark 1.14 says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, So here's his message. Here's the good news from God that Jesus has come to bring. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the message. That's the story. The kingdom is at hand. The king is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news that that king has come to bring. The, there's so much we could get into here. When he's talking about the, the time is fulfilled, he's talking about the day of the Lord. Again, if you're going to be a good student of the Old Testament, that day of the Lord phrase is going to ring with all kinds of meaning and beauty. And that day of the Lord has arrived. It's now. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. If you, if you turn to him, if you receive this new king, then you get him, but you also get everything that comes with him. You get the feasting, you get his adoption, you get his forgiveness, you get to be in his family, you get to be in his home. He says in John that he's leaving, but he's not, he doesn't leave us without sin and the Holy Spirit, but he, he's going to go and he's going to prepare a place for us. In his father's house are many rooms. He's offering this forgiveness. He's offering this salvation. And he's offering this relationship. Again, that's the problem with us is we want to be the king. And he's saying, no, you got to repent of that. But if you'll repent of that, then you can have everything. So this kingdom, this kingdom is right now. That king that Jesus came to bring is right now. It's this room. Maybe not everybody in this room, but it's some people in this room. And as you contemplate Christmas, as you think about his coming, I want you to contemplate it with the full sort of meaning that's there. The the huge upside, but the real hard, difficult thing to get past. At Christmas, we, have say, we say that unto us a king is born. That means that if you want to be with him, he gets to be king, not you. I don't know how easy that is for people. 
Simeon didn't either. This guy that was there celebrating Jesus' birth, old man, he says in Luke chapter 2, verse 34, he blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, but he's also a, a stone of stumbling. Christmas is great news. But it's great news that's got this word repent right at the beginning of it. So let me just ask you, is that you? You know, God has come into this world and it's like if you or I were to walk into this dilapidated home that's already been condemned and it's falling apart, it's dangerous to walk in. When you walk in, you have to kind of walk in carefully because too much effort, too much pressure, too much movement and the whole thing could just collapse. Christ comes into that home. He comes into that place and he finds the creatures that are in it. The dilapidated, condemned creatures that have made that place their home. And he becomes one of them in order to renew them. That's us. The Christmas story, this, this Christmas Eve service that we keep talking about, that, that is an opportunity for us to continue to then tell about that kingdom to others when you don't want to tell about that kingdom to others. Can I suggest that's maybe more of that same reticence to have Jesus be king, to have him really be Lord. We love Savior, but are, are we really willing to have him be our Lord? I just ask you to think carefully about that this morning. The king language that we get as we hear about Jesus, it's constant. And yet, our concept of him and our willing to submit to him, it gets difficult. Let me ask you this morning to confront that difficulty, to choose it, to repent, and then to rejoice. Pray with me. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we're just cockroaches, Lord. Can you imagine us being fallen and us being just people, and that you, a holy God, would become one of us? It's like us becoming a cockroach, Lord. And you did it so that you could remake us, so you could make us into what you had envisioned of us from the beginning. You could make us with you, enjoying your presence and enjoying your joy forever. Lord, I pray that this morning you would equip us to be people who could go and speak that same truth to our own hearts, that we would be first and foremost humbled and repentant because of it, Father, but that we would also be emboldened to go and invite others to this same joy, the joy of knowing you, this joy of being yours, being in your kingdom forever. Pray that we would, Lord, for your glory and our good. In your holy name we pray.